Hey, everybody. Adam Jackson back here for another episode of The Adam Jackson Show. For anyone who's new here, I'm a tech CEO here in Silicon Valley, active tech investor, LP in a bunch of venture funds, recording this new podcast to talk about lessons learned, share some stories. Hopefully people who work in tech find it interesting. This one is going to be hopefully more interesting than the, the pre previous ones. Uh, this week, I'm going to talk about what it was like to start a company with Dr. Phil. Before we get to that, if you're finding these podcasts helpful, useful, please share with a friend, give us a good rating on iTunes, Spotify, blah, blah, blah. A lot of people know that I started Doctor On Demand back in 2012. It's a large video telemedicine service, one of the biggest in the country. Um, not a lot of people know that I started it with Dr. Phil McGraw from TV, from daytime TV. Uh, if you have a job, you probably haven't seen the show, but you certainly know who he is. He's one of the most influential people of, uh, of our culture. And uh, this year, I think, was his last season of, of taping the show. I think he did 21 seasons. It's an incredible run. I learned so much from working with this guy. So I, I thought I would tell a story and, and kind of the origin and, and then some of the fun and hard lessons I learned along the way. So first of all, like, how the heck did I meet Dr. Phil? Um, so this was uh, back in 2012. Um, two very close friends, uh, Nerev Tolia and Sarah Leary, who are the co-founders of Nextdoor, which is a popular app you might use on your phone uh, to hear your neighbors complain about people. So Sarah Nerev, I've known many years before that, uh, have a lawyer, Cindy Hess at Fenwick. Cindy's an awesome, awesome person, also a friend. And Cindy uh, knew Dr. Phil from down in LA and Phil and his son, Jay McGraw, had an idea to start a video hospital, basically. And they were looking for a tech dork, someone in San Francisco to kind of start it and run it and do all the tech stuff. So uh, as I always like to say, the first probably 20 people or so they called were busy. And uh, I was not busy because uh, I just sold my second company to Advanced Auto Parts, was finishing an earnout and looking for something new and fun to do. So uh, Cindy, uh, Nerov and Sarah connected Phil and Jay and I, and um, we met in San Francisco and they kind of pitched me this idea of we have this massive TV show, the Dr. Phil show, and and Dr. Phil's son, Jay, produced a show called The Doctors, which is like a daytime medical talk show. It's, it's probably still on TV. It's like where people go on and like talk about really disgusting medical things and, and then they fix it in the course of that hour. Uh, it's a cool show though. It's, it's very educational and entertaining. They you know kind of pitched me this idea and said, hey, we have this huge audience we reach every day on TV. Um, we think people could really use, you know, a doctor on their iPhone or their iPad or their computer for, you know, non-emergency medical urgent care kind of things or, or behavioral health. So talking to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And so I'd always in my career, I'd always wanted to build a consumer brand. I'd, I'd actually tried twice <laughs> to build consumer brands and uh, they both pivoted into B2B companies and, you know, successful outcomes, but not the consumer brands that I wanted to build. And so um, I didn't know a damn thing about healthcare uh, other than the consumer experience really sucked, especially for, you know, not emergency kinds of things and not non-chronic care conditions. So I thought, you know, what, what an amazing opportunity. Uh, and so we got together, we decided to form the company and I was CEO uh, and Jay, his son, uh, sort of helped, you know, distribution and marketing and that kind of thing. And um, by the way, footnote, I've been asked before if, if Dr. Phil's my dad, but his son, Jay, was my co-founder and awesome guy to work with. Um, so we went ahead and um, formed the company up here in San Francisco and um, 
we started with uh, just medical care. Uh, so think about urgent care. Like it, it was something like the t- 17 of the top 20 things you'd go to urgent care for. You could actually treat just as effectively over video. And this is back in 2012, 2013, like this is actually before FaceTime. So we built one of the first HIPAA compliant, that means like secure encrypted uh, video chat systems. And it, it was funny, like a lot of the our initial patients would say like, hey, that's the first time I ever video chatted with a doctor or anyone else for that matter. And uh, and so that was really fun. It was a, a hard technological problem at the time. Obviously, it's pretty trivial now to build that kind of thing. But um, it came out before FaceTime and it was really fun to build. So the idea was build an app, you staff it with great doctors. Um, we, we just started in a handful of states to begin with. You, ac- you actually have to build a medical practice in every state because states uh, doctors are licensed in one, usually just in one state. So we started in California and Ohio or something. And um, it's kind of cool. The way we rolled it out was we would staff those two states and then we'd shoot a television show uh, demonstrating the app. And then they'd ship that tape only to those two states or to the affiliates, the TV stations in those two states. And then the rest of the country would get the version of the show without that segment, which is really cool, right? It's like an A-B test on television. And, uh, and that's how we started rolling it out. So, um, of course, you know, we, then we got into this tempo of, you know, every couple months we would come down and, you know, shoot a segment. But I'll, I'll never forget the first time we had to do this. Uh, we actually brought the whole company down. So I probably had 25, 30 employees up in San Francisco. We flew everybody down. Uh, everybody stayed at the, I think, at the Beverly Wilshire, which is where guests of the Dr. Phil show stay, um, which is a beautiful hotel, a terrible place to have to do a stressful uh, on-air taping of a, of a technology product. but uh, And so we had this iPhone that we were using AirPlay up to a uh, an Apple TV, which was connected into the studio and you know all the complicated TV gear. Um, this is also the very early days of AirPlay. If you if you use AirPlay now on your on your iPhone, it's very easy. You know you connect to your Apple TV and you can show videos and whatever. Uh, in 2012, 2013, it that technology really sucked and it would just crap out all the time. And so you know, and Phil tapes in front of a live studio audience, I think 300 people or so, and. Um, this thing would just crash over and over and it like really screwed up the segment. And I remember sitting in the audience and like some of my developers and colleagues were looking at me like, oh shit, you know, like this might be the one and only uh, of these demos we do. But we pulled it off and um, and it was just incredible. So this is another point when people ask me about building a two-sided marketplace, what, what's your advice for doing that? I, and I always say, try to get an unfair advantage. Uh, my first two businesses I built with no unfair advantages. And you know, we, we built up these great, first was e-commerce and the second one was uh, automotive marketplace. And, and we built those to scale. Uh, it was very hard. You know, it's just a slog. Everything's a slog. But if you can have an unfair advantage, like accessing 30 plus million people per week on the patient side, you'll grow a lot faster. So basically what we did was we started rolling out on TV um, and, and the the service is very cyclical. So cold and flu season was very, very busy. And so we, you know, we, I think we launched in October of 2012 or 13, I can't remember. And it's probably 13 and um, got this nice spike from TV. And then we went out and like immediately raised our series A. And so the data was looking good, but it wasn't enough data to like, you know, tell a trend. Uh, and so, you know, we had a very competitive series A, lots of term sheets, um, got this awesome firm, Venrock, 
uh, in Palo Alto to lead the lead the Series A round, um, and then would just kind of rinse repeat over and over and and do more Doctor Phil shows and the doctors and it, it was really awesome. It was in- incredibly stressful. I mean, working with Doctor Phil, um, I mean he is he he has probably one of the strongest work ethics of any person I've ever met, let alone work with. Um, was really inspiring to me at the time. I was in my very early 30s when we started and um, have had a lot of great mentors uh, and business partners and investors I've learned from along the way, but he was probably the most valuable. Um, I mean, the guy, you know, he's he, he's extremely smart and funny. Um, and on TV, I mean, obviously, he's very helpful, right? And a lot of people also ask, like, is Dr. Phil a real doctor? Well, he's not a medical doctor, but he is a psychologist. And um, actually, someone sued him about this a long time ago. Like, can you call yourself doctor if you're you know, a PhD therapist, psychologist? The answer is yes, you can. <laughs> so he won that suit and continued calling himself Dr. Phil and well-deserved. And if you've ever watched the show, I mean, he's, he's incredibly helpful, kind of a tough love kind of guy, um, you know, kind of that Texas, you know, no bullshit stuff. I think his catchphrase was like, how's that working out for you? ironically. And um, so anyway, working with him, you know, was, was fucking terrifying. I mean, he was, uh, he, because he just demands excellence from everyone around him. And I learned so much from him. It was, it really like one of the more <laughs> stressful relationships in my life probably, but definitely made me and us, the company better. His son, Jay, awesome guy. Uh, he's roughly my age. Um, you know, he went to law school and, and he's been a really successful uh, serial TV entrepreneur among like starting a ton of other consumer brands and learned a lot from him too. He's just, just an incredible guy. Also really strong work ethic and would have to be to have, you know, grow up with Dr. Phil as your dad. Um, but we, we always joked, it was like, you know, cause Jay and I kind of, kind of ran the thing. I was, I was all day to day. Jay was partially day to day and, you know, Phil you know, just helped us with TV and, um, we would sort of sheepishly talk to investors be like, well, you have a lawyer, TV producer, and a tech dork uh, in San Francisco starting a national hospital. You know, what the hell do we know? So, but we, we surrounded ourselves with amazing doctors. And, um, you know, to this day, uh, it's a you know, giant service, you know, being served by just incredible physicians and psychologists. Um, and so, you know, along the way, um, you know, some notable issues like this was back, you know, in like 2013, 14, um, telemedicine wasn't legal or illegal. It, it was a kind of a gray area in some states. And um, there was another company, Teladoc, that was doing it by phone and they got in a lot of trouble for doing things they, I don't know, the state medical, some state medical boards thought they should have been doing over the phone. We were doing it over video, so it was a little higher level of care. Um, but I'll never forget, we got a you know, very nasty, scary cease and desist letter from the state of Texas medical board, basically telling us like, shut down immediately or else. And, uh, I called our, uh, our our head engineer and architect, Jacinda Shelley, who's uh, now gone off to start her own healthcare company. Just an incredible engineer. She she actually went on to become the CTO of Doctor on Demand before leaving to start her own company. But uh, I remember calling Jacinda and saying, I know we didn't build the platform to um, be able to shut off states after we turned them on, but we got we to gotta figure out how to patch this thing to shut Texas off where you just got this nasty letter. And then I called Jay and told him what was happening. And he's like, yeah, I don't know about that. We should we should call the big man and see what he has to say. And so we got on the phone with Dr. Phil, and he was like, "Yeah, we're not doing that." You know, I'm a Texas uh, licensed therapist, and um, uh, I know the Texas Medical Board don't shut it off. And so, um, and then we all flew to Texas, and 
made our case to the medical board, who, who was incredibly reasonable. I think Phil was uh, persuasive in that meeting. Anyway, it was really nice to have him on our team uh, through that. So then we went on and, and kept growing, growing, growing. And then, you know, interestingly, and this is like, you know, this debate you hear all the time about, you know, should you build a consumer brand or an enterprise brand? And I wanted to build a consumer brand and I was bored with enterprise. And, um, but eventually we you hit a ceiling with it. And, and even with, with Phil and Jay's, you know, massive TV audiences, we started to see a growth plateau. So we launched this kind of enterprise strategy where we would sell into uh, large self-insured employers. So we would, you know, they, they would offer doctor on demand as a benefit to their employees and uh, usually pay for it, uh, pay for the call uh, on behalf of the employee. And so the idea is you keep your uh, folks, you know, from having to take off work to go to urgent care or the hospital, um, you get them care faster over their phone and, uh, you know, $40, $50 video calls cheaper than a $200 urgent care call, right? So the ROI was built in. We built this huge enterprise uh, offering. Venerock really helped with that. We had this amazing first VP sales, Frank Jennings, just just one of the best, most amazing uh, enterprise healthcare sales guys I've ever, ever met. Probably any sales guy I've ever met. Just incredible guy. Uh, and then within a year, we had sold Walmart, American Airlines, Home Depot, all these big employers to offer doctor on demand, you know, as an employee benefit through all their all their channels. So the idea was, you know, build a strong consumer brand and have an enterprise channel. And the better you are at one, the easier the other gets, right? So the more recognizable your consumer brand is, the more penetration you get through the employer channels, and the more employees you have covered, right? So the costs are low the more consumers you'll get, right? Because you can advertise on TV. And so it was a very synergistic strategy. Uh, and that worked for a while until we until we plateaued again. And then um, I was probably about four years in at this point, and it was a lot of progress for four years. Um, we're doing double digit millions in revenue, then turned into like, you know, one of the hardest uh, junctions of my career ever. Um, you know, we had a disagreement at the board level of, around what should our strategy be going forward because we were growing. We just weren't we weren't growing um, logarithmically. You know, it wasn't really hockey sticking. And um, you know, the board, but really, it was sort of split, but kind of more toward the enterprise side, and I was more on the consumer side. And that was, you know, one of the the hardest and kind of most protracted conflicts I've had in my professional life. And we ended up deciding that we needed a new CEO. And I'll, I'll say like, you never start a company, you know, as a founder CEO, planning to leave four years in, right? Like that's just never the plan. Uh, and so it certainly wasn't like my favorite idea, but uh, I stuck around through the transition. We found this amazing guy, Hill Ferguson, uh, to come in and replace me as CEO. Hill and I both went to Vanderbilt he went there many, many years before me. Just, you know, just, just, you know, uh, just kidding. He's not that much older than me, but, uh, he'll actually gave me my, my first job as an intern in college, uh, in Nashville. We went to Vanderbilt together. It was a uh, smallbusiness.com during the, the sort of late nineties. And, uh, I, my very first job was, you know, Hill, Hill was my boss and, uh, he, he's an amazing guy, really uh, just an incredible operator. Uh, so Hill took over for me. Um, Ran the company for another four years, and and we merged it with uh, with a company called Included Health, and we merged it with Grand Rounds, which is another enterprise healthcare company. Now the new company is called Included Health. Uh, somewhere along the way, there we raised a couple more rounds, um, and then in you know March 2020, COVID hits. This was 
obviously like a silver lining of an incredibly horrible pandemic and, you know, awful how many people died uh, and all the jobs lost and just so much economic carnage from, from that pandemic. One of the silver linings was that um, telemedicine sort of went from the fringes to like the new normal. And um, I remember, you know, Hill, Hill was in charge at this point, but I, I was still close to the company. We, um, I think we did, you know, five or six or eight times the number of visits, you know, we expected to, you know, through 2020, uh, raised another round there. And, um, you know, the company's just, you know, off to the races. So ho hopefully we'll be a IPO candidate in the next year or two. Um, so anyway, like le lessons learned, like, you know, it was tough having to leave after four years. I, I always stay close to the company, still close with, you know, a lot of the management team that's there. It just taught me a lot of lessons about, you know, board governance. We had what I would definitely call dysfunctional board of directors there. And, and this is not anyone, like none of the individuals fault. There were, every one of them were fantastic individuals. I mean, we had Senator Tom Daschle on the board. He's just an incredible guy, uh, former um, Senate Majority Leader, Brian Roberts from Venrock, an incredible, uh, you know, in investor and, and healthcare entrepreneur. But, it, you know, like we, we mixed a lot of like healthcare people with enterprise people, with consumer people. And like, those folks just don't see the world the same way, right? And it's it made board meetings really tough and, you know, taught me a lot about, you know, kind of how to shape that stuff and how to not let that get away from me too early. Um, the other the other thing I learned, I'll make excuses for myself, but, you know, I, I was a younger guy and the, the Silicon Valley playbook back then, which it has been up until very recently, is raise as much money as you can, grow, grow, you know, grow revenue with headcount, which I always thought was so stupid. But we had hundreds and hundreds of employees and, you know, just really bloated up and um, it was painful. You know, it was like you, then you have to keep raising more and you, you lose more control of the company and dilution and blah, blah, blah. And I, I you know, I, it, was, it always bugged me in the back of my mind that like we were, you know, growing that headcount that much and, and not using technology to, to solve a lot more of those problems. Although it was an insanely innovative company, right? It was like one of the largest healthcare systems in the country by patient visit volume, <laughs> sadly, not by revenue at the time. Um, and so we had, we had a lot to be proud of and, and still do. But as another lesson, as like, I, you know, take a hard look at, you know, how many full-time people you have and, and what you can be doing with technology instead of more folks. The third one was around culture and um, geography. So we had our headquarters in San Francisco in the financial districts, kind of where everybody was, very expensive office space. And, um, and, but we had to have lots of other employees around the country. We had lots of folks in DC and then our salespeople were everywhere. Um, most engineers were in San Francisco and, you know, so it was, a, it was a distributed company with headquarters in San Francisco. And, and what I didn't realize what, what that created was this sort of like dual class culture of like a lot of folks who weren't in San Francisco felt like they were either missing out or they were somehow second class citizen or whatever, if they weren't in the office a lot. And that created lots of travel expense and like this dual class kind of culture, which was really not right. And um, that was another another hard lesson. I, I remember thinking like, you know, the next one I do, there should be no HQ. Everyone should be remote. Everyone should be on the same level. Um, and then not to say you shouldn't get together, right? But, you know, there shouldn't be this kind of like dual class thing. Um, and then and then finally, like a lesson in management teams. Uh, we had, I think I had 10 people on my management team or something like ridiculous, too many people. You should have five, six tops, on your management team, you know, like the bigger the management team gets, the slower you are, the more analysis paralysis. Again, none of the individuals 
fault, right? I mean, there was mostly, I can name one or two exceptions who, who weren't good, but mostly really good people on the management team. But um, uh, when you get that big, it's just it's just not productive when you need to innovate quickly like a startup. So lots of lessons learned there when I went on to to found. So I, I left in 2016. I, you know, uh, kind of dug a hole for myself and, and studied blockchain and machine learning and that kind of thing. And, you know, and, and out of it came Brain Trust and, and Cambrian, the uh, the hedge fund I, I helped start. Uh, and that's when I fell in love with the blockchain technology and, you know, started what I'm working on now, which is my ultimate passion project, Brain Trust. Um, and so it's very, you know, very fortunate for, uh, on a professional level, you know, it was, it was a hard thing to go through, but the right thing, and, and I'm so thankful for it and, and so thankful for, for Hill and Brian Robertson, uh, you know, and everybody that, that made all that stuff possible. So anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the Dr. Edelman story, the, the, uh, the ups and downs, um, you know, good, good outcome, not just getting started too. I mean, there, you know, that included health is a incredible firm and, you know, hopefully we'll go public here soon. And, um, you know, it's, it's a platform that's helped millions of people get care, either medical or behavioral health care that they perhaps wouldn't have had access to otherwise. So, you know, it's something everyone uh, who worked on it should feel really good about. So, all right, that's, uh, that's it for this story. Um, as always, love getting your questions, DMs on LinkedIn and Twitter, we always get some really good ones. Uh, and if this is helpful, if, if you like this podcast, give us a like, subscribe on YouTube, write a review on Spotify or Apple or whatever. Much appreciated. Uh, thanks and see you next week. Bye.